You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art. And this is the second part. Really, it's an essay. The first part was a lecture. Uh, This is uh, entitled On the Comical and Its Relationship to Art and Life. It's an essay from the Rudolf Steiner Estate from 1890 to 91. And again, the translation is by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. Hardly anything relating to the fundamental idea of aesthetics has suffered from the erroneous requirements of the German science of beauty as much as that of the, in quotes, comical. If, as the German aestheticians did, one explains beauty as the idea, the divine, that appears as sense-perceptible image, then the concepts about the comical offer insuperable difficulties. For in the presence of this requirement, we have to distinguish between two things in the work of art, in the beautiful object. First, the sense-perceptible picture, the material product made of marble, color, tone, word, and so forth. Second, the idea made visible through this picture. Only three situations can occur. Number one, the idea and the visible image can be congruent, so that the idea is not too high, too spiritual, too preeminent to be represented by this picture. And similarly, the picture worthy and meaningful can be commensurate to the idea. In this case, idea and observation are in complete harmony. Neither exceeds the other, and each is commensurate to the other. Nowhere do we feel a going beyond or a lagging behind. According to the German aestheticians, when this happens, it is a matter of the, quote, simply beautiful, or beauty as such, close quote. Number two. It is possible that the idea is more meaningful, appears larger than and exceeds the observation. Going beyond it so that the appearance seems too meaningless, small and paltry, to fully grasp the divine, the idea. The vessel is then not large enough to contain the content, the idea. Whereas in relation to the, in quotes, simply beautiful, we experience satisfaction about the harmony between the divine ideal and the earthly real. Here we must stand in awe before the greatness of the idea, which seems so enormous that we cannot find a suitable picture. In this case we are dealing with the sublime. Number three. Now, the opposite case is possible, namely that the picture, the observation, appears as bigger, more meaningful, greater than the idea. Whereas in the second case the idea disturbs the harmony with its greatness, here the disharmony is caused 
by the predominance of the sense-perceptible picture. The latter pushes itself forward, rears up against the idea, rages against the divine. Therefore one can find only what is ugly here. If one now also considers that tragedy is only a special case of the sublime, then the four concepts, beauty, sublimity, tragedy, ugliness, exhaust the aesthetic inventory, and there is no room for the comical. For it is easily recognized that a fourth case, in addition to the three-sighted, is not possible. The matter is completely different on the basis of my established idea of beauty, quote, Goethe as father of a new aesthetics, close quote, namely, that art can never have the task of representing the idea, for this is the task of science. If the basic thoughts of German aesthetic theory were correct, then as far as content were concerned, there would be absolutely no difference between science and art. The latter would merely have to represent in visible form what the former expresses through words, thoughts. This simple consideration demonstrates that art must have an entirely different task. And it is precisely the opposite of the task of science. If science is to represent the divine in the form of immediate thinking, as it hovers above what is sense-perceptible in a purely ideal form, then art must raise the sense-perceptible, visible, pictorial up to the sphere of the divine. When we face nature or reality directly, we find them to be neither divine nor ungodly, neither filled with ideas nor empty of ideas. Instead, we find them to be indifferent to the divine or the idea. The thinker peers through this sheath of indifference and sees the idea in the form of thought. But to achieve this purpose, the thinker must skip over the immediate reality, must see through and beyond it. Whoever stops at the bare reality cannot arrive at the idea. The artist approaches reality differently. He does not step beyond reality, but accepts it lovingly. Indeed, he lives and breathes in the sense world, in matter, in reality. What he presents are the objects of immediate nature, of real existence. In the content, the what, of the creations of art, we meet nothing that we could not also meet in nature. The artist changes only the form, the how. He represents objects of reality, but differently than how we find them in the world. He represents them as though they were necessarily as lawful and divine as the idea. With respect to content, art is concerned with what is sense-perceptible. With respect to form, it is concerned with the ideal. If science represents the idea in content and form, and nature also represents the sense-perceptible in form and content, then a new realm appears in art, the realm of the sense-perceptible in the garment of the divine. If someone now declares that it is also possible to represent the divine in the garment of the sense-perceptible, this can be refuted by pointing out that no one can have any interest in such a task. 
for it is possible to have the wish to raise what is lower, of less value, into the realm of what is loftier and of more value, but not the contrary. The longing to deify comes from the very lack of satisfaction derived from reality in its original form. Why, then, would one want to change the divine, which in and of itself grants the greatest satisfaction, into a different form? The realm of the non-ideal sensory is reality. The realm of the non-sensory ideal is science. And the realm of the sensory ideal is art. We encounter the first realm when we regard our surroundings with healthy senses. We encounter the second realm when we immerse ourselves in the sphere of our thinking. The third we find nowhere as complete. We must create it ourselves. If the realm of nature consists of sense-perceptible reality, and science consists of what is purely spiritual, then the realm of art consists of no reality at all. That is why one calls the sphere of artistic production the realm of semblance. Aesthetic semblance is the sensory element spiritualized by the creative human spirit. Here we must digress into and examine the realm of subjectivity, from which the fundamental tone of personal longing for art and the enjoyment of art derive. All higher striving of the human being is striving for freedom, free to prevail over the urges of nature, free to prevail over the laws of the sense-perceptible free to prevail over passions and human institutions. That is the path and goal of the better human being. The spirit is freed when it is less and less subject to what nature demands and increasingly follows what the spirit has recognized as idea. Freedom is the dominion of spirit over nature, of the idea over reality. Whatever I accomplish according to the laws of nature, I must accomplish by necessity, just as a raindrop must fall to earth in accordance with an unalterable law. If I act only in accordance with such natural drives, I am not a true self, not a free personality, for then I do not impel myself, but am impelled. I do not want, but rather must. But the more I kindle the light of the Spirit in myself, the freer I become. Only now can I say, it is I who acts, who accomplishes something. At the same time, I experience the certainty of knowing what light it is that I follow, and of seeing in pure transparent form in the Spirit the object of my action. I follow because of the recognized object, not because of my individual will. Such action is utterly selfless, even though it arises first from the self. For it is accomplished by the self, but not for its own sake. Such an action is a deed of love that arises out of the self's complete devotion to the object. 
Therefore, when understood most profoundly, only deeds of love are truly free deeds. The artist's creations are now, among other things, such deeds of love, for he seeks to overcome sensory reality by spiritualizing it. He wants to conjure before our senses a work of art, which in all its sense perceptibility is not permeated by natural laws, but by spiritual laws. Whatever part of the object is merely natural is to be stripped away, overcome, and so placed as if it were divine. Art is a continual process of emancipation for the human spirit, and at the same time it teaches humanity to act out of love. Whoever is able to see into the depths of a truly great work of art will feel the sublime draw upward, which, for the duration of our contemplation, allows us to truly forget space and time and our own personality and lose ourselves completely in the perceived object. Only someone who knows full, pure, and unclouded love will fully understand such a self-forgetting beholding. Whoever does not know what true love is will indeed also be distanced from true art. If we must now assume that in a work of art the human spirit spiritualizes substance, then the genre to which the artwork belongs will depend on the spiritual faculties used in the process of its creation. We must keep in mind that what our spirit attains last is first and highest in the world. The ideal unity, the archetypal principle of things, certainly precedes all things in the world. But we, in our spiritual striving, attain this archetypal principle last. What confronts us first in the world is the unending plurality of sense-perceptible things, which, in truth, are the last result of the archetypal principle. The senses grasp the plurality. The intellect orders and compares it and thereby creates concepts. And reason then perceives the inner unity in this manifoldness. Sense perception, the intellect, and reason are, however, three faculties through which we grasp the world. Sensory impressions bring us nature without spirit. Through the intellect we get the plurality of concepts, but through reason we attain the divine idea that reigns above all. If we now proceed a step further on the basis of our explanation of beauty, then we must ask ourselves, in what way, given the conditions of the three faculties described above, can the sense-perceptible substance be transformed by the artist? It is clear above all that the senses can carry out no transformation whatsoever, for it is their task to grasp reality as faithfully and as unchanged as possible. The intellect which forms concepts from the individual things is already concerned with spiritual matters. Although it still deals with plurality, this is raised out of the sense-perceptible realm. Therefore, it is indeed possible for the intellect to spiritualize nature. 
this hardly needs to be mentioned with regard to reason, which grasps the essence of all that is spiritual. The immediate consequence of this is, the artist can transform the immediate reality in such a way that it appears in a form that is permeated by either the intellect or reason itself. Therefore, art deals with the following. First, works that regarding their content are in accordance with reality and regarding their form are in accordance with the ordering of things through the intellect. Second, works that in their content are in accordance with real life but in their form are in accordance with the ordering and unity of the world through reason. When the artist following the direction of reason transforms reality, his works fill us with such a high degree of satisfaction because he places things before us created by his own hand as if they flowed directly out of the archetypal principle itself. The artist brings us closer to the spirit of the world through the divine unity that shines through his work. That is why Goethe, when he saw the Greek works of art, exclaimed, quote, There is necessity. There is God. It is as if these eternal things had been conjured forth by creative nature herself. Close quote. Thus we perceive in the aesthetic semblance that works of art convey no contradiction with the depths of reality, but only with its surface. Indeed, art presents us with a higher reality. What happens, however, when the artist allows not reason but the intellect to rule his transformation of reality? The intellect is the intermediary between the sense-perceptible and reason. The artist therefore distances himself from the former and does not reach the latter. He no longer possesses the superficial truth that lies in the simple copy of sense-perceptible reality, and yet at the same time he does not yet possess the truth that lies in the depths of reason. The concept that reason devises for individual things is altogether the most unreal element in the world. For, in the world order, there is no such thing as an individual thing by itself. Everything is necessarily grounded in the connection and flow of things. Whoever does not have the great whole in view and measures only the individual thing can never recognize the truth. I can come up with an understandable concept of the individual thing. Truth is not part of this concept as long as the light of reason does not illuminate it. If I form two concepts, these may exist in the depths of the world order with inner unity. But the intellect possesses only the individual concepts that need not correlate with one another, but simply go around side by side. Now the sense-perceptible things that the human spirit transforms, as if they were permeated by intellect, will thereby stand in glaring contradiction to every form of reality. In the intellect itself, the unconnectedness of its concepts is of course not apparent because it allows them to remain separate. But when these concepts, in their inner contradiction, 
appear side by side in an object, then this contradiction emerges before our eyes. I can intellectually form a concept of the spirit of human being. I picture this spirit as being exalted, great. At the same time, I also form a concept of this person's outer appearance, which is small, inconspicuous, clumsy, perhaps awkward. I can think both of these concepts side by side quite well. But when united they confront me corporeally in a person on the stage, then I become aware of how they contradict what is possible according to the laws of nature. How large I picture the head of a human being to be is completely inconsequential as long as I do not go beyond the head. But if I put together a large head and a small body and present this coexistence in a real image, then I become aware of how it contradicts what is possible. Becoming aware of such a contradiction between a created object and its inner possibilities gives rise in us to the feeling of the comical. The comical is thus a sense-perceptible reality in the form of an intellectual contradiction. The what is the sensory element. The how is the intellect with its content that is not rooted in the nature of the whole. Wherever we investigate something comical, we discover that what the creative human being makes of his material contradicts the deeper inner nature and fundamental lawfulness of existence. And whoever is able to see through this contradiction experiences it as comical. The release experienced by laughing at a comical object is grounded in the fact that the human being who perceives the contradiction feels himself to be above the object. He believes he understands more about the thing than is revealed by its appearance in front of him. Whoever does not see through the contradiction also does not experience the effect of the comical. Therefore, one and the same object can have a comical effect on one person and not on another. Whoever does not grasp the contradiction also fails to grasp the comedy. Thus it can happen that the perception of such a contradiction confuses us and puts us in a hazy mood. When we view the situation differently, we no longer look at the intellectual contradiction, but rather at the disharmony in which the specific stands in relationship to the whole. But this indeed has a basis in a rational view, and here comedy ceases. This is namely the case when we perceive something disjointed in nature itself, for example something misshaped or stunted. Here we no longer grasp the specific aspect intellectually, but rather behold a contrast between what has taken shape and what could have and should have taken shape, and this leads us deeper than to a mere view of the intellectual element. This is why there is actually very little that is purely comical in nature itself. The comical is mainly a human creation. In the representation of the comical, the human being can even have the direct goal of attaining, through the pictorial, the visible, what the demonstration of the purely contradictory concept cannot attain, namely to lead 
to the knowledge of the contradiction. What does not make the necessary impression in thought form can do so through the visible representation. Irony and comical satire have this goal. The parody and the travesty also desire nothing other than to make the paradox of something appear ridiculous by placing it beside its opposite. It lies in the nature of comedy that it enjoys a far wider circle of appreciation than other art forms. For here, one need only grasp the contradictory specifics with the intellect. The perception of the contradiction itself is given through the picture, the representation. One need not rise here to a rational view. Furthermore, it lies in the essence of comedy that it primarily serves to demonstrate human foolishness. Foolishness indeed consists in holding the erroneous, the contradictory, to be real. If one were to show the fool his own delusions in an outer sense perceptible representation, then he might perhaps be more easily convinced of his foolishness than he otherwise would be. A serious artist who does not create out of the whole, out of fullness, but pieces his work together out of the individual parts, can easily create something comical involuntarily. Likewise, we show our fellow human beings a comical object when we carry out actions in which nothing but the lived contradiction becomes glaringly obvious to the observer. The effect of this comical always depends, of course, on how high above the comical object the viewer stands. In other words, the extent to which the viewer is capable of grasping the contradiction in its full depth. For example, a wise person will receive a comical impression when he observes how in life so many people value and praise things that do not appear to be at all valuable or worthy of praise. From what has been said above, it follows that he will only dwell on the impression of the comical as long as he dwells with his intellect on the observation of the contradiction. If he penetrates more deeply and considers the amount of energy that humanity expends in the pursuit of empty nothings, then he must, of course, view the situation more seriously. The fool may, on the other hand, receive a comical impression from something that the wise person cannot laugh about at all. When a fool observes something only according to its external aspect and does not see into its depths, then he can indeed laugh about the contradictory nature of what appears on the surface. The actions of gifted individuals are often laughed at precisely because they are not understood. And yet a contradiction is seen between their actions and what is considered normal. Whoever has a sense for detecting the contradictory element in life, for linking the contradictions together, and for bringing things together artificially by means of the intellect, will be particularly suited to the comical. The joke is nothing other than the play of the intellect, which seeks out remotely related things that nonetheless bear a certain similarity to one another and through juxtaposition presents them as a manifest contradiction. The comical effect also depends 
on the degree to which the contradiction outweighs the always present, if slight, agreement between the elements. The completely and utterly strange is excluded from the realm of comedy. We can say, comedy corresponds to the intellect, but it contradicts the sense perceptible as well as reason. Whoever perceives the contradiction, but mistakes the intellect for reason, and instead of laughing is troubled by the disharmony, such a person has no sense for comedy. He will see everywhere only contradictions and hold them to be the, quote, one and only, close quote, aspect of the world. This leads to the mood of soul of the melancholic. Conversely, whoever is convinced that behind the intellect reigns reason, behind the contradiction reigns the inner, higher unity, such a person can laugh with ease at the disharmony. Indeed, he can even advance to the view that wherever there is contradiction, only the intellect is at play. If one contemplates it more deeply with the faculty of reason, one always arrives at harmony. Such a person lives in the belief that a contradiction is always superficial and never deep. He, therefore, always takes it lightly, as something that frees life from uniformity and sameness, but that disappears as soon as one penetrates more deeply. This person laughs about the contradictions and is serious in relation to the divine harmonies of things. We find in this person the fundamental mood of humor. A third case is possible. One can have a capacity for perceiving contradiction, but none for perceiving unity and ideality. Such a person can indeed understand what is erroneous, small, irrational, but this understanding is not supported by a sense for the depths. This person can indeed laugh, but he cannot be truly serious and devoted. That is the fundamental mood of frivolity. The melancholic has indeed the need for the deep unity, but he does not have the spiritual strength to grasp this unity. Therefore he lacks the sense that would allow him to laugh about erroneous things. What he should take seriously he lacks, therefore. He takes seriously what cannot be counted as serious. The humorist has no trouble laughing about something erroneous, for he knows that this error does not lie in the depths, but on the surface. And he has a sense for the things that rest in the depths of world existence. The frivolous person has only a sense for the superficial, but he also only has need of the superficial. He does not know the depths, nor does he wish to know them. He lives on the surface. We have thus concluded our exploration of this subject. We have demonstrated the idea of the comical as a form of aesthetic appearance, as well as characterized the position that this idea occupies in life. The comical is not merely an arbitrary creation of the human being. It is the way in which one ought to view and present the many contradictory aspects of the external side of life. The End of Part 2